You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 110, Floppy Disks. Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of You Don't Know Flack, or as I said last time, episode 1010. How are you doing? I'm doing great. As you know by now, I've moved the podcast to its new home at podcast.robohara.com. So if you haven't changed your links or uh, your RSS feed, you need to go update those. And also, as of the last episode, we launched our own forum, which is thegaschamber.robohara.com. Or you can get to that by just robohara.com forward slash TGC for the gas chamber. And the gas chamber is going really well so far. We have uh, about 20, 25 users, something like that. And uh, people have jumped in and started talking about the podcast. There's all kinds of stuff there. So if you haven't gone over to the forum, stop by there and sign up. Let me know where you heard about the podcast from. And uh, that's pretty much it for old business. On this month, I was going to say this week's show, this week's show, this month's show, whatever, on this episode of You Don't Know Flat, we're going to talk about the floppy disk. And the reason we're going to be talking about floppy disks on this episode is due to a news article that came out last week. I actually, it was covered on several uh, tech blogs and websites. I just happened to have pulled up the story here. Uh, this is the one from PC World. The headline is, Sony to end floppy disk production. And uh, this is PC World's story. It's pretty short. The floppy disk, already abandoned by most computer users, has been pushed closer to extinction by a Sony decision to end manufacturing of the storage media early next year. Sony, one of a handful of companies that still sells floppy disk media in Japan, will end sales of floppy disk by March 2011 due to dwindling demand. The Japanese domestic floppy disk market amounted to about 12 million disks last year, of which Sony had about a 70% share, it said. A 10-pack of Sony 3.5-inch floppy disks costs around 570 yen, or US $6, at a central Tokyo electronics store. Many of the remaining customers are legacy equipment users in the education and research sectors. So that was the story last week, that Sony is going to stop production of floppy disks. And the moment I read that, I immediately had all these old memories of uh, old disk-related stories and just memories involving floppy disks and things like that, and, you know... I thought, boy, that fits in great with this podcast. So that's going to be our topic for episode 110 of You Don't Know Flack. With that, let's get started. So a little bit of history. Before floppy disks, uh, most things were stored either on tape or on punch cards. Now, the average punch card... Now, I, uh, punch cards predate me. I, I never use punch cards. I have co-workers of mine who are uh, five or six years older than me. Some of those people used punch cards in college. So you're talking um, the mid-80s, maybe people in college were using that. But punch cards, obviously, are much older than that. Now, the average punch card by itself held about 100 bytes of information, which, 
you know, in today's world is not very much information at all. In fact, when I was looking online uh, at different comparisons of storage media, the it listed 200 kilobytes uh, for punch cards, but then in parentheses it said that would be two boxes or 4,000 punch cards would give you 200K. Uh, and then 500K, it said, was five boxes or about 10,000 punch cards. And that's, you know, 500K is... We've probably... This file is already 500K at that point, so it's not very much a, a storage. But, you know, we started with punch cards. And then along comes a guy named Alan Shugart. Alan Shugart was working for IBM in the early 70s, and Alan was tasked with coming up with a way to provide updates for main, uh, IBM mainframe computers. So what he came up with was this 8-inch disk. Now, these disks were read-only. You couldn't write to them. In fact, the early disks um, didn't even have the, the plastic you know, casings like what we're familiar with. It was just the film, and they held about 80K. And then eventually Sugar comes up with um, what we would kind of come to know as a floppy disk. Um, now... He invents this when he's working at IBM in 1971, and, and like I said, it was created as a way for them to send out upgrades for uh, mainframe computers. Now, in 1972, Shugart moves over to Memorex, and you know he he's already invented this idea of floppy disks or whatever, but he sees that it could be used not only as a, a delivery mechanism but as a read-write type of uh, you know storage device. So in 1972, while he's at Memorex, he updates his design uh, so that these discs can be read uh, read from and written to. For a little while, this develops into a kind of a back and forth between IBM and Memorex. In 1973, IBM releases uh, single-sided, single-density diskettes, and they are advertised as holding as much as 2,000 punch cards. So we still have this uh, comparison between floppy disks and punch cards at that time. In 1976, just a few years later, IBM releases double-sided, single-density disks, which now hold 500K, and then the next year they introduce, this is in 1977, double-sided, double-density disks, which hold 1.2 megs. So this is back in 1977, and this is more or less the floppy disk that we are familiar with today. Now, in 1979, Sugar and another fellow named Finnis Connor form their own company called Sugar Technology because basically they see um, this as it could be an entire industry of its own. Now, Sugar Technology quickly changes its name to Seagate Technology, which is a company that's still around today. You've probably heard of them. Sugar becomes a chief executive officer of Seagate. In fact, um, Seagate went on to become the world's largest independent manufacturer of disk drives and related components. Now, to backtrack just a little bit, in 1976, uh, when Sugar is making their drives, IBM's making their drives, Wang Laboratories, who is a big purchaser of Sugar Discs, informs them that the 8-inch format of floppies is too large for desktop word processors, which is mainly what they're buying the uh, drives for. So Sugar shows them uh, a new drive that he's been working on, which is a 5 and a quarter inch format. And Wang accepts that. So then we go through the same thing that we went before, where we have five and a quarter inch drives, but disk capacities continue to increase. Uh, in fact, um, on Wikipedia it says, uh, by 1978 there were more than ten manufacturers producing five and a quarter inch floppy drives. Like I said, we have different sizes and storage capacities on those drives. So 
around this point in time is where I personally come into the story, and and um, not I didn't invent <laughs> floppy drives or anything, but uh, in the late '70s, early '80s, is um, when I become aware of five and a quarter inch floppy drives. Eight inch drives basically predated me. Um, I do have one eight inch floppy drive story, and I'll, I'll tell that later on in the podcast. But um, uh, the first computer that my family owned was a TRS-80 Model Three. And uh, we got that in the spring or summer of 1980. Now, that machine came uh, with 8K of RAM and cost us $799. Okay, now to put this in perspective, the entire machine was $799. If you wanted to add one floppy drive, that cost an additional $849. So it doubled the price and then some to add a floppy drive. So... Um, with our TRS-80 Model 3, we never had a floppy drive. We only used uh, a cassette tape for storage, which uh, is very slow, very uh, you know limited in how much you could save on a on a single cassette. Now, one of the reasons why these drives were so expensive was because the TRS-80 and a lot of early computers didn't come with a drive controller. So when you bought that drive, you were also getting a drive controller um, that would need to be connected. We had that TRS-80 Model 3 for a couple of years. In 1982, the price had dropped to $1,000. For $9.99, you could get two floppy drives for the TRS-80 Model 3. Um, But unfortunately for uh, Radio Shack or for Tandy, uh, that was also the same price that you could get an Apple II or an Apple II clone uh, which is what we had, the Franklin Ace 1000, which also came with two floppy drives. So really, it was a no-brainer for us. For the same price, we could add two floppy drives to our TRS-80 Model 3, or we could get an all-new Apple system uh, that came with two floppy drives. So that's what we uh, eventually did. Now, Apple, if you look at their specs, um, they actually adopted the five and a quarter inch drive back for the Apple II in 1978. And the uh, original format had 35 tracks of 13 sectors, which held about 113K. Now, in 1980, they updated that a little bit to hold 16 sectors, so it stored 140K, which is basically what Apple drives had throughout their lifetime, five and a quarter uh, Apple II drives. For a lot of people, the five and a quarter was the primary uh, size of, of floppy disk that was used. A lot of people don't realize how old the three and a half inch floppy is. Uh, Sony actually introduced the three and a half inch floppy back in 1981. So in 1982, uh, the Commodore 64 also comes out. Now I didn't get my Commodore 64 until around 1985. Um, now at that time, you could get a Commodore system uh, somewhere between. Um, a hundred and two hundred dollars, something like that. But I remember that floppy drives were a hundred and eighty-nine dollars at Target because I wanted a floppy drive so bad. I was so tired. I mean, we'd had that cassette drive on the TRS-80 Model Three, and it was just torture. And then having the Apple with the two disc drives for um, several years, you know, uh, there was no way I was going back to a cassette. And if you look at, like, if you compare on the Commodore, if you compare the data set, which was their uh, brand of, of uh, cassette drive, the data set, the data set loaded 50 bytes per second, and each side of the cassette held um, about 100K. And so to load an entire side would take you almost half an hour, you know. 
and if you compare that to the floppy drive, which of course is considered very slow now, but it held 165k per side, and it could load at 300 bytes per second. So right off the bat, it was three times faster. But then when you had added things like, um, you know, fast load cartridges, or when people um, you know, came up with fast loading techniques and things like that. It boosted it to 4,000 bytes or 4 kilobytes per second loading time. So it was much, much faster. Now, the Commodore had an advantage that um, it had its operating system and basic built in. So you didn't actually, you know, need to load those things in. But with the Apple, you did have to load your operating system just like um, the PC would have, you know, in later years. So nowadays, a lot of times, people think about floppy disks as a way to, well, not now, but in the last, you know, 10 years or whatever, floppy disks were used as a way to distribute software. In other words, you would get those programs, but then you would install them onto your hard drive, and that's where you would run them from. But of course, back in the day, most people didn't have hard drives, like for my Commodore or Apple, or we didn't have a hard drive for any of those systems. So the floppy disk would be, you know, what you would load, all your programs from. And then, of course, floppy disk would also be how you would share information between computers, either that or, or via modem, you know. Now, any serious computer user, if you want to call them that, uh, whether you were or Apple or Commodore or even uh, PC, you had to have two floppy drives. Um, now, of course, for like the PC and the Apple, like I said, those didn't have their own operating system built in. Uh, so it was really a practical reason why you would have two floppy drives. You would boot off the first one. Like, you might always leave your your uh, Apple DOS disk or whatever in the first drive. And then you might put a game uh, in the second drive, you know. And then you would go back and forth. The same thing might go on a PC. Uh, like, if you were using a program, say, like a spreadsheet program, like Lotus 1, 2, 3 or something. You might leave your program disk in, the, in drive A but your data would be saved on drive B. So that way you weren't constantly, um, you know, flipping disks back and forth. And for all those systems, for the Apple, the PC, Commodore, whatever, it was much easier to copy software if you had two floppy drives. And that way you could put the original in drive A or, or the first drive and a blank disk in the second drive, and then you could just copy the information uh, from one drive to another. On a Commodore 64, like the first copier I had, when you only had one drive, because of the limited amount of RAM, you would have to swap between the original and your blank seven times, and it would take about 15 minutes to copy a disk. So obviously having two drives was much, much faster. With Fast Hackem and just the, uh, the fastest copier that it had, you could copy a disk in about 35 seconds. So it was, it was much easier to do things like that uh, when you had two disk drives. Now one term that has come up I, I didn't hear this term until recently. This wasn't a term I ever used back in the day, but disks that you could flip over. Uh, in other words, if you think like a, a, a PC double-sided double-density disk, or three and a half inch, or even a five and a quarter inch, you you don't turn those disks over. You just put them in one way. But in the old day with Apple and um, uh, Commodore, I know specifically you could store information on either side of the disk. And now those disks are referred to as flippy disks because you could only read one side. Now, I never heard them called flippy disks back in the day. When you bought a disk, it was assumed that you would only use the front side of that disk. And if you've ever seen a five and a quarter inch disk, you know how it has a little notch on the side, which allow you to write to the disk. That would be like the little tabs uh, that are on top of a cassette tape 
I may be even dating myself by using references to cassette tapes, but when the, the notch is broken, you couldn't record to it, and then if you put tape over it, you know, you could record to it. But what you could buy was a disc notcher, which was a little plastic device, and it was perfectly measured, so you could put the disc in and notch, you know, put the notch on the other side, and then you could flip that disc over and use both sides of the disc. Now, I have heard, I don't know if this is true, inside the disc is a little dust filter, and it's designed so that when the disc spins one way, it's constantly collecting all the dust that, you know, gets in your drive or whatever. I have heard that when you punch these discs and flip them over that because you're running that filter in reverse you're actually depositing dust into your drive now that may or may not be true i could tell you i've been doing it for 20 or 30 years and my discs and my drives are still working so you know if it did get your drives dirty it, it doesn't seem to damage them very much but anyway so they refer to those now as flippy discs now one thing is and i'm going to get into this a little bit more in a minute about prices but um you know, discs, as a kid, I didn't have a job, but I had a computer and I wanted to download and save as many games and programs and files that, you know, that I could. So, you know, disc space was a premium. You would just cram files wherever you could possibly save them. Uh, I remember buying, you know, games or whatever, not that often. <laughs> I downloaded most of them. But let's say like the disc that came with your floppy drive, a 1541, it was like a utility disc. It had some different tools. But it was only one-sided, so you could notch that disc and store stuff on the backside. Or, you know, if you had an original program or something, you could use the backside of those discs. So, you know, it was a lot about trying to get as much as you could out of each possible disc. And then, like I said, when you when you notch those discs, you could write to them. So if you didn't, if you wanted a disc that you didn't want anybody to write to, you had to cover that notch up. And each box of discs came with little things of write protect tabs that were little stickers. Usually they were black or sometimes they were silver and you would take them and, and you would cover that notch with them, wrap them around the disc. And, um, you know, sometimes when discs got hot after a while, those things would kind of fall off and every now and then one would come off in your disc drive and you'd have to get a butter knife or something to fish those things out. Those things were a pain, but, but yeah, so you could do that if you had something really important that you didn't want to accidentally get erased. You could use a uh, write protect tab to put over that. Um, and then also, whenever you bought blank discs, they came with labels. Now, um, my dad had bought um, tractor feed disc labels, which some people did, where you could actually put them in your printer and print out the contents of each disc or whatever. But, you know, that didn't seem... I just used them as blanks. I would stick those on the discs and then just write on them with a, a fine tip Sharpie or whatever. And they always warned you, don't write on labels with... Um, pencils or ballpoint pens or whatever because if you pressed too hard you could damage the the film inside the disc but so i had a you and you could use markers but it seems like that you know you'd end up writing so big and when you're saving so many things on each disc you had to write really small you know whatever they was on there so i'd use these big um printer labels you know and then just write really tiny on them just like blank cds and blank dvds there were lots of different companies that made floppy disks as well um you know, Memorex and TDK and one of the ones that a lot of people remember is Elephant Discs and they had a big slogan that said Elephants Never Forget. They were very popular at the time. In my town, my town was small enough that there actually wasn't any place locally for me to buy blank discs. If I wanted to buy blank discs, I had to go to the mall. This was before um, uh, Walmart or Target, places like that actually sold blank floppy discs. There was um, one place across town, a little computer store called Kosal's, which sold um, 
packages of 10 blank floppies, and this would have been um, 85, maybe 86, um, but it was 750 for 10 blank discs, so about 75 cents each. In fact, um, uh, sometimes you could buy them, they would like copy shareware games or freeware games onto the discs and mark them up a little bit, but of course, you know, when we got them, we would just peel the, the labels off or put our labels over that and, and reformat them. Now that was, uh, you know, going to places like Kosals or whatever, Those that was good if you just wanted to buy 10 floppies at a time, let's say. But, um, you know, me and my friends, being the little digital pirate kitties that we were, um, <laughs> we, we needed a lot of blank discs. And so we started buying uh, mail order. Now, if you bought mail order, you could buy diskettes in bulk. And I've gone through some of the old computer magazines that I have here. In the 1984 December issue of Compute Gazette, there's an ad in the back for uh, verbatim, Maxell, or Data Life diskettes. Your choice, 1995 for 10 discs. So that's 1984, and basically you're going to be paying two dollars per floppy. Fast forward three years, 1987. Also Compute Gazette, also a December issue. So exactly three years later, in 1987, uh, they have name brand Memorex, $12.95 for 20 So before it was it was $20 for 10 now it's $12.95 for $20. Um, or you could get Nashua. I never heard of that. It must be a, a generic brand, but it's $39 for 100 So now you can see, I mean, before, three years earlier, $2 per disc, now we're at 39 cents per disc. Uh, in fact, there's another ad right here uh, that has discs for 33 cents each. I can actually, you know what, on the uh, on the podcast link, I'll put a couple links to these ads just so you can see them. Now, also, it's interesting in this 1987 ad in Compute Gazette, they also have an ad here for three and a half inch discs, and they are 99 cents each. So uh, you can see that starting to creep into, and this is a uh, Compute Gazette, which is Commodore, but also. Uh, Amiga, things like that. So there were reasons why some of these discs were different prices also. And one of the reasons that um, discs varied in prices because they might be pre-formatted. Now that's a, a term that you know now we might think is funny, but, but you could buy discs that were either formatted or not formatted, and the difference would be your time. So, you know, if you bought a uh, 10 box of discs of unformatted discs, you would have to sit there and format each one, which on a Commodore might take a minute or so. The same thing goes with the PC. You know, you'd have to format each disc before you could use it. So buying pre-formatted costs a little bit more, but it could save you a lot of time as well. And another thing that um, happened quite a bit was because these discs were so expensive, later on, like when I was in high school, uh, we were required to bring floppy discs to our computer class, but there was no reason, you know, most of the people in my school didn't have a reason to buy 10 floppy disks in the late 80s or early 90s, you know, so often the uh, teacher would buy boxes of 10 disks, of course you know they're buying them, you know, for $5 at that time or whatever, and then they would sell them to a dollar per student, so it kind of seems like a racket in, in uh, retrospect now that the teachers were making money off us, but but you got to remember I mean, this is the late 80s, early 90s and there are still lots of people that don't have home computers at that point, you know now, um one funny thing I remember is on these bulk orders, uh, you know, we were kids, so we would try to, you know, maybe get a couple of people to go in, like, hey, let's let's get 100 discs and I'll split it with you 
Uh, and then you would see these prices like, ah, you know, ah, $50 for 100 that's 50 cents. But you could get it cheaper if they weren't formatted, right? So, okay, maybe it's, it's $40 uh, for unformatted, you know. But then there was another level that you could go even lower than that, which was um, you could get them without the paper sleeves, uh, no labels, you know, nothing. It would just be like a, a, a big cube of floppy disk wrapped in saran wrap or something, you know. And um, so sometimes we would do that. And I have a lot of old discs in my collection where I've actually, I had to make my own sleeves <laughs> out of um, printer paper or whatever. Like we would fold them up and, and use uh, scotch tape to hold these things together or whatever. Because, you know, without that, all it took was uh, one Coke spill or, or sometimes even touching the film or whatever, you know, the oil uh, on your skin, whenever you would touch the, the thing, you could damage uh, their, you know, they're not as fragile as they as people would leave you to believe, but they were um, they were pretty fragile. There's a lot of uh, floppy disks that went bad over the years for me, and it, I'll talk a little bit about that. Now, another problem uh, that you get into or that I got into was now that you're ordering um, hundreds and hundreds of floppy disks, is a you have to have a way to store all these things, and then b you had to have a way to keep track of where everything was. Now, when it comes to storing them, the ideal way was to buy these plastic disc boxes that everybody wanted you to have. And um, you put your discs in there, then they would close or seal somehow, which would keep the you know dust out of your discs. And that was the ideal solution. And that worked really good if you had, you know, I think each one may hold around. They don't quite hold 100. You know, let's say they hold 50 or 60 discs, something like that. And so when you buy one disc box or two disc boxes, you know, I mean, if you have a hundred floppies, that's that's an ideal solution. I was a I was primarily a Commodore user from 1985 to 1991, 92 in that era, uh, or around in that, that time, and I amassed over 700 floppies. So there's no way I'm going to have, you know, 14 or 50 disc boxes or whatever. And eventually, I moved to shoe boxes, which are almost the perfect fit. Uh, and you know, a, a shoe box you might be able to get 100, 150 floppies in there, you know, and of course they're they're really cheap too, I mean you know, as long as you need shoes <laughs> then you have shoe boxes so, uh, so I ended up putting a lot of my stuff in shoe boxes, and very early on I also moved to a numbering system, so every one of my discs has a number, and as well as a label, and then um, you know, for a long time there weren't later on they came up with um, uh, cataloging type programs similar to what they have now where you could store, you know, uh, lists of all your programs and stuff. But mine was basically, uh, you know, stored in just a, a word processor. So think of like, you know, storing, think of every file that's on your hard drive or every file, uh, that you've had on floppy or whatever, and storing all those in notepads. So every time you got a new file, you would have to, to give it a number and put it in there. And, and so it wasn't uncommon for those, list to go outdated and, and then have to go through and try to, you know, sync it up. So, but, um, as far as, as, uh, trading games among people went really that, uh, how many discs you had was a kind of a, a status symbol or a, a ranking way to rank people. You know, if you had 400 discs of software and somebody else only had a hundred, well, if you wanted to get together and trade games and obviously they were going to have to come to you because, you know, you had, quote-unquote more power if you want to see it that way there were also all kinds of weird things about floppy disks and one that i remember very well 
uh, was this text file. You know, there was always text files like how to build bombs and and how to, you know, do all these crazy things. Uh, gosh, the one I always remember is is there was one that talked about how you could uh, get high from smoking banana peels. And, and then, you know, some people would read, just like today, you know, people see stuff on YouTube or whatever, and they think, oh, it must be real because it's on YouTube. And back then it was the same way. There was a thing where you could... Uh, get get stoned for about a lot of these seem to be about <laughs> getting high, but um, there was one where you said you could get stoned by licking frogs, and thank goodness I was smart enough not to try any of that stuff. But I know people who did, you know. But there was one that talked about um, how to make a disc bomb, and the way that you would do this is you would take a floppy disk and and carefully peel open the top part and pull the film out. And then when you took the film out, you would make this concoction out of um, match heads and nail polish remover, and you would mix all that up and paint it on the film surface. And once that had dried, you would assemble the thing back together, fold the top down, reseal it somehow, and then mail this disc to somebody. And of course, you you know, the file said you had to put a, a label on it like, hey, you know, check out this new game or whatever. And then when the person would put this in their drive, when it started spinning, the match heads would ignite the nail polish remover and it would set their drive on fire. I mean, back in the day, this was like one of those, now it would be almost like an urban legend thing. Like, you know, you always knew somebody who knew somebody who said that they had done this and it worked, but um, I don't know if it ever really worked. I, I seem to remember that we tried it. We tried to make one and sent it to somebody, but I never heard if it worked or not. And I'm sure it's the type of thing, if it did work, we would have heard about it. So I don't think it worked, but... <laughs> Another thing about floppy disks is um, you would think they're perfect for throwing, you know. And, and, of course, during the same time where I'm really into floppy disks is this other time where the, the big ninja craze comes in and everybody's throwing Chinese stars, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> there's this one time I remember uh, there's a friend, uh, a mutual friend of, a, of mine. His name is Mark. And it was kind of a running joke that uh, no matter what you did, if you threw something, it was going to hit Mark in the eye. And, uh, I mean, if you you know threw a pencil at him, it would hit him in the eye or, or whatever. Any, anytime you threw something, if you threw things long enough, it would hit Mark in the eye. And so um, the same friend, the friend that I met Mark through, um, Justin, Justin and I were sitting in, a, in his room one time uh, copying uh, Commodore games, and... Um, he had just finished telling me this story, and so Mark had gone, had left the room or something, and so when Mark came back in, Justin threw a disc at Mark, and of course, if you've ever thrown a five and a quarter inch floppy disc, they don't fly straight like a Chinese star, they have, you know, because they fly way up in the air, and they loop or whatever, so the, he throws this disc, and it loops way up in the air, almost into the ceiling fan, comes back down to the loop, arcs around, and hits Mark right in the eye. <laughs> Which is even funnier because at this point, Mark's wearing glasses and it actually, you know, knocked the lens out of his glasses. Mark was not happy with us at all. But um, So floppy disks had many other uses other than storage, like um, being bombs or, um, you know, acting as Chinese stars. Now, from the early days of uh, computing and floppy disks, piracy was a problem because, you know, drives were able to read as well as write. So it was very simple to, you know, uh, copy a file from one disk to another. And for many years, and it still goes on today, obviously, uh, you had copy protection, which would try and prevent uh, people from copying 
discs, you know, and of course there was, uh, you know, copying software. I mean, Commodore had things like uh, Fast Hack'em and Maverick, and I mean, there's just millions of programs out there. Things got so bad at one point that there was actually um, a movement called Don't Copy That Floppy, which was like a public service announcement, you know, trying to get people to not copy discs, because honestly, I mean, some people actually didn't know that you weren't supposed to share programs, you know, and, and some people knew but did it anyway, so um, and, and this is, someone has been kind enough to archive this and upload it up to YouTube, so here is a little bit of Don't Copy That Floppy. But Jenny, hold up. Look, I brought a disc, and we could copy this, okay, and we could play it on my brother's computer. Okay, no problem. All we gotta do is... Whoa. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Did I hear you right? Did I hear you saying that you're gonna make a copy of a game without paying? Come on, guys! I thought you knew better. Don't copy that floppy. Wait a minute. Who the heck are you anyway? Yeah. And what are you doing on our computer? I'm your MC Double Death. DP, that's the disc protector for you and the posse. That's the artist. Writers, designers, and programmers that work up the images for games and grammar that let you learn, but also play the game you came here for today. Now, I know you love the games, and that's all right to do, because the party who makes them, they love them too. But if you start stealing, there's no more they can do. But I just wanted to make one copy. You say, I'll just make a copy for me and a friend. Then he'll make one and she'll make one and where will it end? One leads to another, then ten, then more. And no one buys any discs from the store. So no one gets paid and they can't make more. The posse breaks up and then close the stores. Don't copy. Don't copy that floppy. So let me break this down for you. San Diego, no more Oregon Trail. Tetris and the others, they're all gonna fail. Not because we want it, but because you're just taking it. Disrespecting all the folks who are making it. The more you take, the less there will be. The discs become fewer, the games fall away. The screen starts to shrink and then it will fade. Programs fall through a black hole in space. The computer world becomes bleak and stark. Loses its life and the screen goes to dark. Welcome to the end of the computer age. <laughs> Isn't that great? Now, there were other ways that uh, companies tried to get people for, to not, you know, copy their their programs. One was like the approach that Infocom took by including feelies, what they called feelies, or extra things. Um, a lot of games included maps, uh, things that enhanced the game. Others included things that you needed to beat the game, like code wheels or, you know, manuals that would have information that later on the game would ask you. You know, even if manufacturers weren't able to keep people from copying floppy disks, they were still able to, you know, make it to where the game wasn't playable or wasn't enjoyable, you know. There were um, even games that had dongles, like I uh, had a friend who had leaderboard golf, and it actually had a dongle that you had to pl plug into your... Uh, Commodore, and without that dongle plugged in, the game wouldn't run. So, and of course, like everything else, uh, you know, pirates were able to to bypass that. But one problem with five and a quarters is that they were um, considered to be kind of unreliable. In fact, on the back, I have a couple of them here. On the back of um, 
five and a quarter inch disc labels, there were often pictures of ways not to treat your floppy disk. Now, this one, uh, this is a AT&T brand floppy. And on the back, there are six pictures here. The first one is um, just the picture in the sleeve, and it says protect. And uh, a lot of these are in uh, multiple languages, too. Um, so this says protect. The next one has a the disc with a thermometer next to it, and it says 50 degrees to 125 degrees, which normally wasn't a problem as long as discs were stored in your house. But uh, over the years, what has happened is people have moved these old collections of discs out to their garages or in their attics, and um, it, it's damaged them. Uh, the third picture here says insert carefully and as a picture going into a disc. In other words, you know, you need to put it in the right way. And then the last three pictures, the first one has a finger touching the film and it says never. <laughs> so there's no question on that one. The second or the the fifth picture has someone bending the disc and it says never. And then the last picture has a magnet next to the disc and it says Never, <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm looking at these other discs. They are all basically uh, variations on the those same warnings. They may have slightly, you know, different pictures or whatever. Of course, one thing to keep in mind is that, uh, as it says here, uh, putting this next to a magnet can damage the disc. The problem is, is that uh, many old computer monitors, like my old computer monitor, kind of acted like a big magnet. And not only that, but uh, it had a speaker in the front, which definitely had a magnet in it. So a big flat monitor is a great place to, to stack your discs. So you'd be using your discs and stack them up on top of your monitor and, and then, um, or, you know, lean them up against the side where that speaker is. And later on, you know, your disc would be erased or damaged or something. So the Elephant disc, had actually had a little warning here. I'm, I'm reading uh, this little, uh, not really a jingle, but just their warning about discs. And it says, don't touch the shiny parts. Don't jam them into their slots. Beware of magnetism. Handle them like glass. Keep them comfortable in temperature. And then it says, if it's important, copy it. So, you know, it's that same thing where, or it's that same idea, I guess, where even though you have this information, it's, you know, you're always worried about it, um, you know, being lost or whatever. And so after people over a few years, the five and a quarter kind of got a reputation as being unreliable and I don't know that that's necessarily just we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit but um, well let's talk about it right now one of the main reasons I don't think that's just is because throughout the years I have lots and lots of five and a quarter inch discs from the 80s and I have lots of three and a half inch discs from the 90s and I would say if you compare the two, I have a lot more five and a quarter inch discs that still work than three and a half inch discs. And I, I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if three and a half inch discs uh, weren't made as well or they weren't made to last as long or if they were maybe they were more susceptible to temperature changes or something. I, I'm really not sure. But I personally, I've seen better success rate with five and a quarter over the years, especially considering that those discs are a decade older than the three and a half inch discs. But anyway, so five and a quarters kind of developed this reputation as being fragile, and companies want to start working on a successor. Now, at this time, you have uh, multiple companies competing to try and come out, and we see um, a two-inch disc, two-and-a-half-inch, three-inch, three-and-a-half-inch, uh, multiple ones, and none of them are compatible. 
Now, Sony, who's one of the forerunners at this time, comes out with their 3-inch floppy, uh, which is used by the MSX and a couple other things, but, you know, the 5 and a quarter inch has too much market share at this point. So nobody really pays attention to it. But in 1982, the Micro Floppy Industry Committee, which who would have thought there would be such a thing? But um, it's a, this, this uh, article says it's a consortium of 23 media companies get together and they like Sony's idea, but they change it and they agree that there needs to be a common standard for all floppy drives. And so they come up with a three and a half inch. So it's a little bit different from Sony's, but um, uh, so we start seeing this three and a half inch disc around 1983, and in 1984, Sony pitches this their three and a half inch drive uh, to Apple, and this is the drive that they end up using on uh, the Macintosh and on the Macintosh uh, 128. And so that kind of sets the standard. Once Apple goes with this drive, um, then in 1985, Atari goes with that drive with their home computers. Um, so we see it on the Atari ST. Uh, Commodore adds it uh, to the Commodore Amiga. We also see uh, the 1581 disk drive for the Commodore 64, which is an add-on disk drive, which uses 3.5-inch disks. Uh, the Apple II GS. So pretty much everybody adopts this and it becomes the standard in fact by 1988 the three and a half inch disc is now outselling five and a quarter inch discs so people really like the three and a half inch disc um, and it had a lot of advantages over five and a quarter inch disc um, one one advantage was it had a, a hard case so you know all these warnings about um, folding discs or putting them in the wrong way or whatever um, you you know there, you couldn't see the film, and you couldn't bend them, and you could only put them in one way, which was kind of uh, you know a five and a quarter inch disc you could actually put in upside down or backwards or sideways or whatever. And with a three and a half inch disc, it was designed to only go in a drive one way. We also have a sliding tab now for write protecting, so you could slide this tab to protect the disc and then slide it back over so you know we could get rid of all those little sticky decals that we've been using. And like the five and a quarter inch disc, a three and a half inch disc is used both uh, to deliver software for installation to hard drives, but it's also used uh, to run software directly off of. So uh, you know everybody moves to the three and a half inch drive. Now the problem that we start to see around the mid 90s and let's say 94 95 in that era is that we see the release of the CD-ROM and with the CD-ROM comes multimedia and multimedia takes space you know not just multimedia but games in general are growing in size programs in general are growing in size um, if you look at uh, games like you know X-Wing came on six floppies. Uh, Star Wars Chess came on eight floppies. These are titles that I have sitting right here. Um, Willie Beamish came out on six floppies. So now we're, we're you know, to a, you have to install something, and it's taking multiple discs. But what gets even bigger is uh, utilities and applications. Uh, like Windows 95, you could purchase on 13 floppies. 
by the time we get to Windows NT, uh, Windows NT 351 shipped on 22 floppies, and early version of Microsoft Office 4 shipped on 24 floppies. So, you know, we're getting into this almost comical, you know, ordering a brick of floppy disks to get things. In fact, I found a website that showed what today's programs would look like if they had shipped on floppies. Um, iTunes was one of the smaller ones. iTunes would take up about 46 floppies. Uh, Adobe Photoshop uh, CS4 would take about 358 floppies, and uh, a game like The Sims, uh, The Sims 3, would take 1,760 floppies. So obviously, you know, the games grew bigger than what the media. Uh, could sustain and so what we see a lot of during this time is also uh, options on software for example uh, like Willie Beamish was a game that came on six floppies or you could buy it on CD-ROM and when you bought it on CD-ROM you got full voice support whereas with the floppy disk version you just got um, subtitles that you had to read yourself same thing with uh, X-Wing you could buy the version that came on six floppies or you could get uh, CD-ROMs, you know. Almost, if you want to go full circle back to the very original 8-inch floppy, we could see CD-ROMs replacing uh, floppy disks as a delivery mechanism, if you will, of software to end users, but it's not writable yet, at least. So, before we get to the age of writable CDs, we have a couple of contenders who move in that want to replace the floppy disk. And again, when you look at what floppy disks give you, uh, read-writable, but also portable. You could put a floppy disk in your you know front pocket and go walk around to another user's machine, plug that disk in, and access your software. So the first two contenders, uh, one is zip disks from iOmega. And zip disks originally came in a 100 meg format, and later on they went to 250 meg, and I think there were bigger ones uh, than that. But uh, the problem that Zip encountered was the same problem that uh, all these other drive manufacturers encountered over the years, and that was that uh, physically the Zip disk was different than a floppy disk. So you have to get people to not only uh, adopt your media, but also they have to buy your drives. And, um, you know, Zip disks were uh, popular for a while. You could buy them internal, you could buy external parallel, or you could buy SCSI uh, ones and even later on you could get USB ones but um, they, they just never really caught on uh, as far as like mass you know adoption and then we also had the super disk the super disk would hold 120 meg on its floppies and one advantage of the super disk was that it actually was backwards compatible to regular three and a half inch disks but again um, you know we just don't see uh, wide-scale adoption of this. And another problem is because right around the corner we now have CD-ROM burners coming out and CD uh, rewritable disks. And for a while it looked like CD rewritable disks were, at least I thought, that was what was going to put the final nail in um, the floppy's coffin. I'm not sure exactly why that didn't happen. I know from a personal standpoint, especially on those early CD rewritable drives, that it seemed like you could you know, write a disc, but if you use it on a different drive, it might not read it or whatever. So there was always that kind of um, incompatibility issues, or you could, you know, maybe you could write to it on one, but you couldn't write to it again from another drive. So I don't know, it just never really caught on. But, um, uh, you know, people 
still into the, the late 90s, people are still using floppy disks. And Apple decides that computer users need to be weaned uh, from the floppy disk, or else we're just going to keep using it forever. And so in 1998, they released the iMac, and uh, the iMac has no floppy drive. And of course, this was um, uh, major headlines at the time. You know, what are we going to do without a floppy drive? But it was pitched um, that, you know, you, whatever you needed, you would save on your hard drive, or you could save to a network drive, which made sense. Um, but most people at home didn't have, uh, you know, network drives or whatever. So it was um, one of those situations where you were kind of being forced into a new mm, paradigm, an ideology. I don't know. I don't think people were ready to give up their floppy disks at that time, but, but um, they were kind of had to if they went to the iMac. Most other computer retailers did not follow suit for several years. In fact... Um, Dell kept floppy drives on their systems until 2003. Um, in 2003, Dell dropped, uh, including floppy drives by default, on some of their server lines. And here's a little fact that not a lot of people know, but uh, you know, on uh, your Dell or on your PC, there's a little. You may see a sticker and it says, you know, approved for Microsoft Windows or approved for XP or things like that. Well, to get that sticker, you had to, or manufacturers, had to meet a certain list of requirements. And if you go out to, um, actually, I I actually wrote these down. I'm sure nobody will go look them up. But um, if you go look at, uh, under Microsoft's uh, knowledge base, there's one that's number 182751. And that is the Windows 98 requirements. And if you look at that, the requirement for Windows 98 includes having a floppy drive. Now, just like a lot of Microsoft requirements, we know that you can actually load a machine without a floppy drive. But that is listed as being a requirement for Windows 98. And therefore, to get that sticker on your machine that says you are Windows 98 uh, compliant or compatible, you had to include a floppy drive. Um, also, knowledge base number 304297 is um, the requirements for Windows 2000. It also says you must have a floppy drive. So when Dell sold a machine that came with Windows 2000, if they wanted to include that sticker that says, you know, Microsoft Windows 2000 compatible, they had to include a floppy drive. Now, if you go look at the later ones, uh, 314865, that is the system requirements for Windows XP. And if you look through that list, there is no mention of a floppy drive. So that's one of the reasons why. And uh, there's also no mention if you go look for um, 2003 Server. And so when 2003 Server came out and they didn't need those requirements, that's the year that Dell dropped, including a floppy drive, and was able to still maintain having the, those uh, Windows-compatible stickers on there. I talked about... Um, zip disks and super disks and CDRWs. So uh, what finally replaced floppy disks? Obviously something has to have if um, Sony's going to get out on the market. And the first thing that's the obvious answer that everyone thinks of is CDs and, and DVDs. CD burners and DVD burners are now um, de facto equipment on every machine. So 
a CD will hold the equivalent of around 450 floppies, and a DVD will hold around 3,000 floppies. So if you think, I mean, what, what's interesting to me is, if you think about, I mean, how uh, monumental the release of the first floppy disk was, this is almost the difference. I mean, that first floppy disk held, what, 2,000 punch cards held. And now, if you think of a DVD holding a little bit more, but 3,000 floppies, it's almost, you know, it's comparable. So you know, those original floppy disks, even though now we think, oh, it's, it's uh, you know, a pittance of storage. But back then, it was a huge amount of storage. But anyway, uh, so we've got CDs and DVDs. We also have, uh, my favorite is the USB stick which works a lot like a floppy disk. Uh, you stick it into the front of a machine, copy files to and from, and that's a USB stick. Uh, we also have external USB drives, and this could be used, I mean, I have an external terabyte drive sitting right here, so, uh, you know, there's no limitation, really, to the amount of storage you can put on USB external disk drives, you know. We also have um, SD cards and CF or compact flash cards, and I really thought we would see more of those. You know, one of my machines here at the house has a little uh, compact flash uh, disc or uh, uh, drive bay on the front, I guess, where you could stick in SD cards and compact flash cards and things like that. And I really thought we would see more of those, but now with the uh, proliferance, I guess, of USB sticks, it just kind of, you know, it's a good way to move data to portable devices, but as far as using them as storage, I guess that just didn't catch on. Um, we also have phones as far as moving data from one place to another. I know I could plug in my phone and just uh, copy files to it and take it to work and copy the files off. So that it kind of uh, similar to USB stick or something like that for storing data or moving data and, and it kind of replaced that need to have a, a floppy disk. There's also a uh, floppy to USB adapter. I found this the other day while looking online and I think this is really cool. The form factor is the same as a floppy disk, but instead of putting a floppy disk in, you put a USB stick in the front. So you plug it in, but the machine sees that as a floppy disk. So anything that you would need to read or write from a floppy disk, this device uh, will replace that. And that's a, it's called a floppy to USB by PLR Electronics. I'll add that link to the podcast uh, page as well. But I thought that was pretty cool. But then the other things that have replaced uh, floppy disks are obviously uh, network storage, like on your local area network, which is what we all do at work, and then cloud storage. Um, and the Jury's still out on that one. <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but I, I've, for so many years, I've been used to storing my own data and backing up my own data and knowing uh, who has access to my data and knowing how my data is being backed up. And it seems like you give up a lot of that stuff with cloud storage. So, uh, like I said, jury's still out on that one. We'll wait and see how that pans out over the next few years. But uh, now I promised you that I had a uh, eight-inch floppy story, and I'll, I'll go ahead and toss it in here. Um, I like I said, I eight inch floppies uh, predate me. I never used an eight inch floppy, but uh, one time several years ago, I went to a garage sale. This was like uh, 1995, and I found a box of blank eight inch floppy disk, which I thought was the funniest thing. Uh, I mean, at that point in time, 
five and a quarters are almost uh, have been phased out, you know. So we're all three and a half inch. So and the eight inch floppy is just comically large, you know. So I bought it just, you know, because I'm me and it's an old computer thing. But I just thought it was hilarious. So I bought these discs. I had no use for them, but uh, so I bought them and I brought them home. So a couple of years later, I'm working as a computer uh, network administrator uh, in a as a government employee, and. Um, I'm unpacking, you know, I just moved across the country and I'm unpacking all my stuff and I find this box of 8-inch floppies. And my role, one of my roles was, uh, you know, to set up the server room. And so I had, had my server and everything. And I don't know why I decided this would be funny, but I, I take this 8-inch floppy, I put a label on it, and I write uh, emergency server boot disk. And I tape it to the side of our server. <laughs> so it's this kind of funny thing for me. Every time I go in the server room, I see this 8-inch floppy mounted to the side of our server and it says emergency uh, uh, boot disk or whatever so uh, the next year like the fall of 1997 I go to Comdex in Las Vegas and I'm there in Comdex with a buddy of mine and uh, we're hanging out and I get a phone call from uh, my office back in Washington and the people at the office are frantic I'm actually talking to the secretary and uh, the secretary says, you know, the server is crashed and uh, nobody could get it to boot. And they've got all these people in the in my office trying to get the server to boot. And they're trying to figure out how to use this uh, server emergency boot disk. And then back in my head, I'm thinking, what are they talking about? You know, I don't have any boot disk. And then it dawns on me that they're trying to use this uh, 8-inch floppy, you know, and trying to figure out where to put this thing. There's obviously no drive big enough to put this disc in. So anyway, um, when I got back to the office, I actually took the disc back down, you know, to avoid confusion. Um, but anyway, so other than uh, playing practical jokes on coworkers, what are floppies useful for today? And there are actually quite a few things. Um, you know, some of them are pretty far out there. Uh, there are entire Linux distros today that run off of floppy disk. There are floppy disk based firewall Linux systems. You could just download it on a floppy, burn it, and run a machine completely off of floppy disk. Um, I know in uh, my work, working with uh, servers and uh, you know machines and things like that, a lot of times I have to upgrade uh, firmware and uh, sometimes BIOSes, and that's all done still through floppy disk today you know so i think eventually we'll see uh newer systems that will allow us to do that from usb sticks but right now we still do that quite often through uh floppy disks and obviously uh playing around with old computers uh you know if you're like me you still need old floppy disks another large consumer of floppy disks are synthesizer owners there are several uh keyboards and synthesizers that store their sounds and sound banks and things like that on three and a half inch floppy disks. So that's another uh, large user of three and a half inch disks. There are also uh, digital cameras like the Sony Mavica that store their pictures on floppy disks. Now they're not making uh, new ones like that today, but uh, the people that own those are still uh, using floppy disks. And then there's uh, lots of dedicated uh, lab equipment, scientific equipment that also uh, use floppy disks that have floppy drives built in them. So there are still uh, quite a few uses for three and a half inch floppy disks today. Um, obviously not enough for Sony to keep making them and I'm guessing there will still be a surplus of those for many years to come so I, I don't think uh, people have to run out and stock up on floppy disks anytime soon. 
I know on eBay, multiple times I've purchased a five and a quarter inch floppy disk still, I mean, even new ones, still new in the box. So I don't think we'll run out of three and a half inch floppies anytime soon. Now, using floppies today, there are still, really, to use a floppy, today all you need is a floppy drive. Uh, even as current operating systems like uh, Windows 7 still support floppy disks, uh, I know a lot of people there were uh, rumors that Windows Vista or Windows 7 would drop support for floppy drives, but they haven't. Uh, so if you still have a, a three and a half inch internal drive or even a five and a quarter inch drive, those operating systems do support those drives. Now there are also external drives. If you're looking for a three and a half inch external drive, you're in luck. There are lots of uh, external three and a half inch USB floppy drives that uh, that you can use. You can plug them right into your computer and read and write three and a half inch diskettes with no problem. Now you would think that someone would have done the same thing for five and a quarter inch floppy disks, but unfortunately that hasn't happened for several years until recently. A new drive controller called the FC5025, haha, wink, wink, uh, was released, and the FC5025 is a USB solution. You plug the USB into it, and then you can plug a five and a quarter inch floppy drive into it. Now the device is designed to be internal. Uh, you can put this into a, a slot in your computer, run power to your drive off your power supply or whatever, but what several people are doing, such as myself, is converting these into external units. And uh, hopefully on uh, on my website, robohair.com, I'll have some updates soon of what I'm doing with that, but I'll give you a hint. Uh, I have a couple of uh, 1541 cases and uh, with dead drives in them, so you never know what you could see a uh, FC5025 installed into, but uh, we'll see how that turns out. Now, a lot of times when people are going back and finding these old discs, they have trouble reading them, and it could be problems with the diskettes themselves, but more often than not, it's problems with the drives. Now, five and a quarter inch drives were notorious for needing to be realigned, and um, there are guides online for realigning old drives, and also both five and a quarter and three and a half inch drives also could be cleaned, and uh, so it's a good idea. You could either do that manually, and again, there are uh, lots of instructions online of how to clean them with uh, alcohol and a q-tip or you could buy drive cleaning kits which basically was an automated way of doing the same thing it was a disc shaped cleaner that you would uh, apply the cleaning solution to put the disc in the drive and then run the drive uh, multiple times to uh, clean the drive um, you can actually do i guess you'd call it a disc transplant and uh this does work. I've actually done this before. If you have spilled coke or something inside a disc or, uh, you know, maybe fingerprints or something like that, oil on the disc has made it unreadable, you can actually open up either a five and a quarter or a three and a half inch drive, carefully remove the film by touching it as little as possible and then soaking that uh, in soapy water and uh, let it, you know, rinsing it off, letting it dry and putting that into another uh, would you call it a disc container or disc sleeve, whatever, the outside part of a floppy disk, but you could transplant that film from one disc to another and oftentimes recover the information on there. So, for the last part of the podcast, I know I'm running long this time, but uh, what else is new? I jotted down a few uh, interesting uses for floppy drives that I've seen pop up lately, um, and there, there are two really that stuck out. I mean, obviously people have used them for 
uh, art projects and wall decorations, things like that. But the two that I really enjoyed were, um, one is people have been using floppy disk drives to make music with. Now, I don't mean they are creating music uh, and storing them on the disk. I mean they are actually using the drives themselves by manipulating the motor and what speed they run in to make music. So, here are a couple examples. Uh, here's one in particular. This is a Commodore 1541 disk drive that someone has programmed to actually make it play music. And so, as you can tell, it's probably not going to replace uh, live musicians anytime soon. But it, that is pretty cool that people are able to do that. Another thing that uh, people have been able to do is create RAID uh, sets using floppy disks, which is, uh, you know, basically a, a silly thing to do. <laughs> um, but for those of you uh, that aren't familiar with RAID 5, RAID 5 is a... Uh, method in which you could group multiple drives together and then information can be streamed across those drives uh, which increases performance but also gives you redundancy and um, what one fellow did with a Macintosh was uh, found out that you could create a RAID and it would actually allow you to add floppy drives so he added you know four or five floppy drives through USB to his Macintosh, added those all into a RAID container, and was then able to uh, create a RAID out of those, a, a drive array out of those floppy drives. Now, how practical this is, <laughs> not very, but uh, it, you know, it just goes to show that, that even though this is 30-year-old technology, people are still doing fun things with it. Now, before I finish tonight's uh, podcast, I want to talk about three options that you have when it comes to getting rid of old floppy disks. Um, the first option that you have, uh, I mean, you could just go throw them away, but, uh, you know, they could have sensitive data on them, unless you're going to reformat them again or, or wipe them all with a magnet or something, you know, you probably don't want to spend the time to do that. Um, there's a, a website called greendisc.org, uh, which is a place where you can mail your old floppy disks and they will recycle them for you. So that's a very green solution, but that's my least favorite of the three that I'm about to present to you, actually. Um, the second option that you have is uh, selling your old disks on eBay or Craigslist. And this is a good solution because uh, not only are you uh, getting rid of the disks, but you are giving them to someone who's interested in them, uh, possibly somebody like me who buys these disc collections. And I will tell you uh, a quick story before I get to the third solution. Recently on Craigslist, I, uh, yeah, recently, let's say, I purchased a rather large Commodore 64 
lot. It was actually advertised as a retro computer lot, but uh, the majority of what was in there was Commodore-related uh, hardware. But anyway, uh, in this collection, I found several old uh, disc boxes, and one of the things that I found in those discs was a complete set of C-U-O-N, or the Commodore Users of Norman, uh, library. So this was a user group back from the 1980s who had collected these discs uh, and put together their own library. I can't find a single hit for CUON or Commodore Users of Norman on uh, the internet. And so it's this this little time capsule of this Commodore user group that existed and is now gone uh, and obviously put a lot of work into these discs. I have since converted all these discs over to um, D64 format, which is uh, what most Commodore emulators use as a disc format, and uh, I'm going to be posting those online very soon, but, uh, you know, so so getting rid of those disc collections on Craigslist or eBay, things like that, uh, can get those into the hands of people that are looking to archive those. Uh, the third solution that I have for you is to give them to me. Uh, which sounds a little selfish, I know, but um, uh, for the sake, uh, for the cause of archiving all these old discs, I would love to have your old floppy discs. Um, you know, if even if they're PC, if they're Apple, Commodore, Atari, whatever. I own uh, one of those FC5025 controllers that I talked about earlier, which will let me archive discs in any format. You can even uh, archive TI-99 floppies. So uh, if you have old floppy disks sitting in your garage or in your closet, you don't know if they're good anymore, you want to get rid of them, but you don't know what to do, uh, drop me an email at podcast at robohara.com and we will work out a deal. Also, uh, Jason Scott, who is well known as a, a digital archivist. Jason would love to have your uh, discs as well for archival purposes. You can email Jason directly at uh, jason at textfiles.com. So if you have these old discs that are just sitting around collecting dust, uh, you know, get them to somebody who will archive it. These discs are, are not going to last forever. And, you know, you never know. You could have a program that people are have been searching for or, you know, uh, old lists of BBS's, uh, old documents, things that only you had on those discs. And when that disc eventually dies or you throw it away, then that copy is gone forever. So, um, yeah, if you could get that to somebody that's willing to archive that for you, that's that's all the better. That kind of wraps up uh, today's show. I know it's running long, so I could probably talk about floppy disks for a long time, and I have tonight, actually. Um, but uh, it's going to be sad to see them go. I mean, uh, there's something iconic about um, the floppy disk in general. I know when I was writing Commodore, I was looking for an icon that I could use to separate out different ideas, uh, you know, within the same chapter, like an idea type break. And I ended up using a five and a quarter inch, a uh, small icon of a five and a quarter inch disk turned at a 45 degree angle. And to me, that just summed up, you know, that whole time, like everything. When I think about old uh, computers and, and that whole era, you know, I just, uh, you know, you always think about floppy disks. You always think about having them stacked around and sorting through them and rummaging through people's collection, looking for software and stuff. So uh, it'll kind of be different to um, not think about that anymore. I can't imagine, you know, having a collection of, 
a little container full of USB sticks, uh, you know, on my desk or anything like that. So uh, it, it will kind of be sad to go, but also with, uh, you know, the limited amount of storage and the lifespan on them, I guess it's uh, everything had its day and, and the day for uh, floppy disks is over. So anyway, thanks for listening to uh, yet another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Uh, join us at thegaschamber.robohara.com. Come let us know what you thought of this episode and uh, put in your vote for what the next topic will be. I've got lists of proposed topics for future podcasts, so come in there and um, let us know if you uh, you know have any feedback on this episode or requests for future episodes. You can always uh, follow my blog, which is at www.robohara.com, and you can email me at podcast at robohara.com as well. So. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you soon with episode one. I should say 1011, but <laughs> it's episode 111. That'll be probably coming sometime next month. We want to keep the momentum going. So uh, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.